Hello, everyone. I'm Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Myers Detox podcast. And on today's show, we have a really good guest. Her name is Dr. Ellen Vora, and she is a holistic psychiatrist. And she's going to be talking about the anatomy of anxiety and all the different underlying root causes of anxiety. You know, so many women suffer from anxiety, millions of women in the United States, tens of millions. And so this is a really important topic to, to look at because, you know, I don't think people realize that uh, anxiety affects, you know, 40 million Americans. And that number continues to climb in the wake of the, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic. And while conventional medicine tends to view anxiety as like a neck up problem, the reality is that brain chemistry and emotional trauma uh, and, you know, psychology is uh, at the root cause of anxiety. And so as a holistic psychiatrist, Dr. Ellen Vora offers nothing less than a paradigm shift in our understanding of anxiety and mental health. And, and she suggests that anxiety is not simply a brain disorder, but a whole body condition. And so in her work, she's found, you know, many times that the symptoms of anxiety are traced to imbalances in the body. So the emotional and physical discomfort that we experience from the sleeplessness, the brain fog, the stomach pain, the jitters is a result of the body's stress response. And some people, because of emotional trauma, have a really high set stress response. Uh, it can be triggered very, very easily. And so uh, it can be triggered by, you know, even diet, drinking alcohol, nutrient deficiencies, and the use of technology and a lot of the other factors that we'll explore on the show today. So our guest today, Dr. Ellen Vora, um, she has a new book called The Anatomy of Anxiety. We're going to talk about it on the show. And like I mentioned, she's a holistic psychiatrist, acupuncturist, and yoga teacher, and the author of The Anatomy of Anxiety. And she takes a functional medicine approach to mental health considering the whole person and addressing imbalance at the root. Uh, so she received her BA from Yale University and her MD from Columbia University. And she's a board certified psychiatrist and integrative holistic medicine practitioner. And she lives in New York City with her husband and daughter. And you can learn more about Dr. Vora and her work at ellenvora.com. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, Wendy, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So you studied at Yale university and you attended Columbia and, um, and can you share with your listeners, uh, about your experience working in the medical field and how it kind of led you to explore like a more holistic approach to anxiety and mental health? Yeah, I probably have a, a somewhat similar story to so many people who start in conventional worlds and then end up in holistic worlds. It, it was sort of a two parallel processes happening at the same time while I was in medical school at Columbia and then doing my psychiatry training, which I actually ended up doing at, partly at Columbia. And then I finished at Mount Sinai. Um, throughout that time, I felt somewhat uh, disenchanted with what I was taught to do. And I didn't really feel like that was sufficiently helping my patients thrive. And in parallel with that, I was really out of balance in my own health. And I was a physician. I thought, I know how to feed myself and how to exercise. I, I, I know what to do. And yet the springs of the machine of my body just kept popping out. And so I really had to come to grips with the fact that what I had learned was not allowing my patients to thrive. It wasn't allowing me to thrive. And I had to go back to the drawing board. And so I went on a somewhat inefficient 10 year journey of figuring out how do I get my own health into balance? 
And I studied Ayurveda and Chinese medicine and became an acupuncturist, became a yoga teacher, studied functional medicine. Over time, I came to um, work with psychedelic medicines. I did all of this additional training to try to understand really when I meet a human being and they're out of balance, how do I help them gently get back to a place of balance where they can go on and allow their health to recede into the background and just serve as a foundation so that they can lead a fulfilling life. Yeah, I mean, that, that learning curve is really inefficient. It's really mm-hmm. inconvenient too. <laughs> but that's why yeah. we're here to help you guys, you listeners, uh, cut down that learning curve as much as possible. Um, so in your book, you have a new book out we'll talk about in a second. So you categorize anxi- anxiety into false anxiety and true anxiety. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so that's the central thesis of my book. And, and basically the way I was trained was to think of anxiety according to the Bible of mental health, what we call the DSM. And it's classifying anxiety as generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder with or without agoraphobia and so on and so forth. And the idea is always to steer management, but it, it's there to indicate, you know, are medications indicated? Is cognitive behavioral therapy the tool that's appropriate for this diagnosis? But those were never my first line tools anyway. So it wasn't meaningfully steering treatment in my practice. And what I realized was a much more useful way of thinking about anxiety in, so that I had a, a kind of, you know, now I know what I'm working with. Now what? What do we do? A more meaningful way of thinking about it was, are we dealing with false anxiety or are we dealing with true anxiety where false anxiety is avoidable anxiety? It's anxiety that has a basis in the physical body. It's usually a stress response as a result of some aspect of modern life that's getting our physiology out of balance and tripping us into a stress response that then feels identical to anxiety. And it doesn't need to be happening. It's creating a lot of unnecessary suffering. And so when I know I'm dealing with false anxiety, I become Mr. Fix it. And it's like, here's what we do. You know, we got to change your sleep schedule and we got to get off these foods and heal the gut and heal the liver and be less inflamed and so on and so forth. And then true anxiety is entirely different. And that's purposeful anxiety. It's really not something to pathologize. It's not something that we could gluten-free or decaf coffee or gut heal our way out of. It's our inner compass. And it's there to help guide us and slow down and pay attention to what's truly not right in our personal lives, in our communities, in the world at large. And it's a call to action. It's saying, take that anxious feeling and transmute it into purposeful action so that we can make our unique contribution, which does not have to be grand. It's just uniquely what we're here to do to help. Yeah. You need to heed that body's call and listen to it before it gets out of control. And and so you have a lot of tips in your book about body-based anxiety. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of the tips that you recommend? Yeah. So this is the whole first half of my book and there's just a lot of actionable strategies I like to improve people's sleep. That's one of my favorite things to treat because it's, it eludes so many of us good sleep and we, it's actually very treatable and it just requires a slightly different strategic understanding of what helps humans sleep. And I use an ancestral lens, basically that, um, we evolved for millions of years under the conditions where it gets cold and dark after sunset. And in modern life, it's really different than that. We're getting exposed to blue spectrum light after sunset and it's disrupting our circadian rhythm. 
it's making us feel inappropriately wakeful in the evening. Um, we're not secreting melatonin, which helps us sleep, which also helps our body do repair work. It revs up our immune system. So we're missing all of these cues. And so I really like to be strategic with patients about light and make sure that they're not bringing their phones into their bedroom after at bedtime, that they're wearing blue blocking glasses after sunset until bedtime to block blue spectrum light and protect the circadian rhythm. And there's a whole host of other things we do for sleep. And I like to look at the gut and the diet. And some people like this approach and some people find it overwhelming. So it's always, I'll meet people where they're at with it. But when it comes to anxiety, I think one of the most impactful changes we can make is to simply keep our blood sugar stable, which as you well know, is you know part of an intricate web of how our body is managing stress and our adrenals and all of this. And that's so challenging. It's so yeah. challenging to do no matter. Yeah. We have so many cravings and, and so much temptation. And it's, I, I think people don't realize how much sugar they eat. So hard in our modern world does not make it easy, but I think to sort of motivate people and to recognize how central this is to anxiety, when we eat something sweet, like refined carbohydrates or added sugar, our blood sugar spikes and then insulin chases that and then our blood sugar crashes and the design of the body in this potentially life or death, you know, it sees it as like, we're starving. We don't have food is, um, we release a, a, adrenaline and cortisol, our stress hormones, and that signals to the liver to break down its storage of glycogen so that we have starch broken down into glucose, puts that in the bloodstream, sort of restores normal levels of blood sugar. So it's good. It saves the day. Our organs don't fail but it feels like a five alarm fire in the body. And that feels identical to what we call anxiety and panic. And so a lot of suffering, a lot of panic, a lot of anxiety that's happening in modern life is simply due to blood sugar crashes. And so if you're struggling with panic disorder, if you're feeling anxious every day at three in the afternoon or five in the afternoon, you know, it's worth taking a look at the pattern of your anxiety, how it might relate to blood sugar, just giving it a try, whether it means overhauling your diet and eating in a more blood sugar stabilizing way, which I will acknowledge can be so tough. Or some of my patients, they benefit from just a hack of using something like almond butter and taking a spoonful at a few different intervals throughout the day to give them a safety net of blood sugar to kind of blunt any crash that might be superimposed over it. Yeah. That's a really good tip. That's a really good tip. Also maybe don't drink monster energy drinks. Yeah. I, I know, <laughs> I know two people that have gone to the hospital with anxiety attacks and heart palpitations because they just don't realize, you know, you can't drink a gigantic liter of monster energy drink or other ones. Never forget a patient. I had this <laughs> beloved patient so many years ago. So it was like a former lifetime. And I believe he was Mormon. He might've been Seventh-day Adventist, but he basically through his culture and his religion, he was not consuming coffee or tea or alcohol. He had really like really clean living and he was struggling with so much anxiety and insomnia. And I was like doing this inventory and I really couldn't find the source of the false anxiety. And one day he came into my office carrying like a jumbo energy drink. You know, I don't <laughs> know if it was Red Bull or Monster, whatever it was. And I was like, well, hold up. Like you told me you don't consume caffeine. And he's like, right. In my religion, like we, we can't consume caffeine. And he's like, this is juice. 
(laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, good branding, Red Bull and Monster. Well done. Um, No, it's not not loose definition of juice. (laughs) Yeah. So he thought he was drinking fruit juice. And um, and I don't fault him, right? Like marketers are so brilliant and effective and um, but so, yeah, there, there are sometimes kind of hidden sources of things that are very destabilizing to our physiology. Yes. Yeah. And so in your book, you also make a really critical connection between sleep and anxiety. You know, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, you touched on it, um, but can you maybe go a little bit more in depth? Cause I mean, there's like 14 different things that can go wrong when it comes to sleep is I know, cause I've had to hack my sleep for years and I finally got it right, but it took a really long time. So, uh, can you talk about some sleep hacks? I'd love to. Yeah. So I think one thing to just recognize with the relationship between sleep and anxiety is that, um, we kind of appreciate that anxiety impacts our sleep. We know that if our, you know, if we're having racing thoughts, if we're ruminating when we're trying to fall asleep, it makes it harder to fall asleep. But what we don't all appreciate is that any compromise to our quantity or quality of sleep is directly contributing to our anxiety levels through a number of different pathways. One that I think is interesting and not being talked about enough is uh, the function of our glymphatic system. So I know like you guys know so much about the lymphatic system and so much understanding of how to detoxify. And our brain has its own system for detoxifying and the design of the body. It just happens to be that that happens at night while we sleep. That's basically when, you know, the city of our brain goes to sleep. And that's when the garbage trucks go around the alleyways of our brain and clear out the trash. And so if we're not sleeping adequately, we don't get that opportunity to clear out the trash bags of the alleyways of our brain. And we know what that feels like the next day. Then we're going through our day kind of foggy, kind of tired, less coordinated, less patient, less creative, um, just less clear in general, and, and certainly more prone to emotional liability and, um, and anxiety. So you know, it's just one more way to motivate that sleep is critical as if people even need more. We want to sleep. Nobody wants to struggle with sleep. As we talked before, I like the being strategic about light. I like a cold bedroom. I like a blackout shade and eye mask and a white noise machine. And I always want people to at least make conscious choices around their relationship to caffeine and alcohol. Um, Both can impact sleep negatively. Caffeine, what many people don't appreciate is that it has a long half-life let's call it about five or six hours. So if we're having coffee or tea in the afternoon, you know, it's effectively like we're having half of that coffee at like 9 PM. And we wouldn't do that if we know we struggle with sleep, but effectively that's what we're doing. And so you want to push caffeine a little earlier in the day, maybe reduce the overall amount. Um, maybe find other strategies for giving yourself that feeling of being revived when you hit a lull during the day. And then of course it becomes a a virtuous cycle when you drink less caffeine and you get better sleep, you don't hit that lull in quite the same way when you're consistently getting good sleep. Alcohol is its own whole conversation. Yeah. That's like a whole podcast. (laughs) It's it's nobody's favorite conversation. Um, Suffice it to say it does help us feel sleepy, um, but it doesn't actually create real good quality sleep. Um, And it rushes our brain with a neurotransmitter called GABA, which is a lovely feeling. It's relaxing, but our brain wants homeostasis. So it sees all that GABA and it converts it to a different neurotransmitter called glutamate, 
which is an excitatory neurotransmitter. And then that's why we're tossing and turning the second half of the night. And we wake up headachy and irritable and agitated and thinking, I just want to get through the day until I can have a glass of wine. And so alcohol creates the need for itself, disrupts our sleep, and just in, in, in several ways contributes directly to anxiety levels. Yeah, that's a really good point. That was a really clear illustration of what's happening. Cause I think a lot of people don't understand, you know, why they, they need to drink or they feel compulsed to drink alcohol every night uh, before they go to bed and, and why they wake up feeling like crap afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so let's talk about food uh, for thought. And so you touch a little bit on blood sugar control, but what is it exactly about food and, and some tips the listeners can do to help, uh, you know, control their anxiety. You know, in my like several rounds of edits, chopping the food chapter down to like, it's still, I think the longest chapter and I had to cut so much material. There's a lot to be said about it, but first and foremost, that food is central to managing anxiety and in, in all these nuanced and complicated ways. Um, one of the basics is that our brain requires certain raw materials to function nutrients, vitamins, minerals, and we get that from food. That's the design of the body. And it's really hard to do that in modern life. We're eating food produced from kind of nutritionally bankrupt, depleted soil. Um, and not to mention, you know, all the ways that our food is inflammatory and our processed food industry is not only nutritionally bankrupt, but also actively inflammatory to our bodies. And so it's just really hard to feed ourselves in a way that nourishes us, that doesn't tip our body into a state of further imbalance. And so I have the utmost sympathy for, we all struggle with this, but I want people at the very least to be informed of the fact that this is critical to how we feel. And if we can err on the side of eating real food and err on the side of avoiding fake food and generally having an eye towards feeding ourselves nutrient dense foods, we're not, we're sort of really trying to think from a place of radical self-love, how do I nourish my body, take good care of myself? And it usually requires stepping out of the paradigm that we've been handed of what a healthy diet looks like. You know, whatever your idea of that is, we've, we, there's been so much marketing and sort of mixed message headlines telling us, okay, be low fat or be low carb or don't eat the egg yolk or, you know, and it's just all over the place, clean eating. And I think a good compass is just to picture like what your great, great, great grandmother was eating. What's a balanced plate that generally offers some well-sourced protein, some starchy carbohydrates, like a starchy tuber and vegetables with ample healthy fats throughout. And that's usually a good way to give ourselves the nutrients we need for our brains to function well so that we can feel less anxious. And it's also a way to communicate to our body that we have enough. And I think that is itself calming to our nervous system. When our yeah. body says, I have enough of what I need. And, and I think that allows us to drop into a state of calm. Yeah. I think people also don't realize that uh, it's just mineral deficiency can cause their nerve. They're not, their nervous system is not going to be relaxed because they need Absolutely. minerals for so many different processes in the body. And so you're not going to sleep. You're not going to feel relaxed and just a very simple, basic thing can make a huge difference. Yeah. And that's where, I mean, I love to minimize supplements in my practice but I think that the modern environment just makes it too difficult to get certain basics, even from a nutrient dense, diverse, real food diet. So some mineral supplementation is often really helpful for anxiety. There's one other nuance around food that I want to bring up, which is that it's so hard to eat well in modern life. 
And for that reason, it can become somewhat anxiety provoking to try to eat well. And so then people even dip too far into kind of orthorexia where they're obsessively trying to eat in the right way and fixating on it and making a lot of sacrifices in your daily life, saying no to social plans and things like that. And that's counter therapeutic. That just leaves our lives so oriented around how to feed ourselves that we miss out on why, you know, what there is to live for social connection and ease and pleasure. And so we all have to kind of strike this balance and it's not easy, but to not fear food, to not feel fragile, to nourish ourselves all while doing it with some looser grip and a feeling of ease about it. And, um, I try to offer strategies to make that possible. I feel like I've figured out a kind of a way to balance that in my own life, but I have a lot of sympathy for the ways that we all struggle with it. Yeah. And let's talk about that, about um, herbs and supplements. So you have an appendix in the book that talks a little bit about that and, and supplements and, um, you know, herbs for anxiety. Can you list some of those and, and when you recommend them? Yeah. So I, I always try to have a light touch when it comes to supplements for so many reasons. And one is I don't want to distract from the fact that I think food is the best way to get our nutrients. Um, and certainly the best tolerated by the body. Um, and I don't really want to kind of play into green medicine. The idea that, um, like conventional medicine taught me a pill for an ill and sometimes integrated physicians sort of are like, well, it's still a pill for an ill, but now we're going to use rhodiola or ashwagandha instead of Lexapro. And so overall I'm, I'm interested in de-emphasizing it, but there are things that help my patients and it's very bespoke. It's unique to the individual, but generally on the margin, I think magnesium glycinate at bedtime is a really helpful supplement for just about, not just people who struggle with anxiety, but for most of us, most of us are deficient in magnesium. It's really because our food is deficient because our soil is deficient. So it's very hard to be replete with magnesium and anybody I've ever tested their red blood cell magnesium levels has been deficient. Um, and so I like people to take that at bedtime. Um, I, I personally supplement my magnesium pill with an Epsom salt bath about once a week to just absorb it through the skin as well. It has other benefits. And then I've found that turmeric is helpful for people that are inflamed. Um, that is a nice way of interacting with the immune system at a a kind of pivot point called NF-kappa B, which really I find helps calm the immune system down and point its target more appropriately. Um, so when inflammation is playing a role in someone's anxiety, turmeric or curcumin can be really helpful. I certainly have had patients thrive with CBD compounds and hemp oil. Um, I've had other patients be disappointed by it. So it's, it's a little bit individual. I think one hot take on that is that it's not like we can all expect it to work right away. So some of my patients who've really benefited from it because they took it consistently for about a month or two months and then really start to see it shift their baseline of anxiety. And there's several others, but that's where it becomes really individual, kind of what's the right thing to reach for. I think maybe the other one worth adding on a general way is the B vitamins and in particular, the methylated B vitamins, since there's this disproportionate representation in anybody struggling with mental health issues. Um, people with the MTHFR mutation. And so basically I like people to just take an already methylated B vitamin, because if you have the MTHFR mutation, it's like you have a handicap around methylating your B vitamins. So, you know, have your supplement take care of that step for you. And so if you start to take a methylated folate and a methylated B12, that can really support neurotransmitter production and detoxification. 
and can, can help with anxiety levels. And, and what about GABA? I've had a number of friends with anxiety and even myself uh, at one point was taking GABA and was tremendously helped by that. Can you talk about, um, you know, that role, that supplement's role when it comes to anxiety? That's a great question. There's a lot of nuance to that. I think overall, I am very oriented around GABA in my practice. I think GABA is like this endangered species of modern life. Um, and so I'd so there's so many things that stress us out and things we're not aware of. And it just uses up all the GABA. Yeah. And we don't have any left over when we go to sleep. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, some of that's nutritional. Some of that's the fact that we have a compromised gut flora. So we're missing the bacteroides species that help us manufacture GABA. Um, and then we burn through it through our days. Alcohol compromises our GABA functioning. Benzodiazepine medications like Clonopin and Xanax also dramatically compromise our GABA functioning. So it's really hard to have healthy GABA levels. Overall, what I do in my practice is rather than recommend people supplement with it, which I, people I've had patients benefit from it, but I do think it's the kind of supplement where it's hard to do it well and make it genuinely lipophilic and able to cross the blood brain barrier. And the ones that really do it well, I have some concerns about. So I've had patients really get, um, like I'm, I'm very interested in how people become physiologically dependent on benzodiazepines. That's a big focus in my practice. And some of the kind of GABA supplements are almost like second cousins of the benzos. So like with the Fenibut and um, I think it's called PharmaGABA. Um, that might not be right. It might be. No, it's PharmaGABA, Thorn PharmaGABA. Okay. There's one that I think is actually now discontinued, like no longer allowed to be out on the market. And I'm glad about that because I had a lot of patients get hooked on it and it was an over-the-counter supplement, but it was, um, just a little too much like a benzo. And so I don't generally steer people toward the GABA supplements. What I like to do instead is create a diet and lifestyle strategy for supporting natural manufacturing of GABA. And That's that great. comes down to fermented foods and breath work and cold showers and gargling and humming and, you know, toning the vagal nerve function, getting better sleep, more nutrition. I think there's so many things we can do to support our GABA manufacturing and functioning in our body. And I prefer to take that old fashioned route. That's great. That's great. Yeah. And so, uh, so what role, uh, does like emotional trauma in parenthood, uh, you know, parent issues, childhood attachment trauma, play in the genesis of, of uh, anxiety? And then uh, does that play a role in, in how you work with patients? Absolutely. It's so central. And, you know, my book, it's sort of separated into these two areas. And the first half, you know, there's almost no mention of trauma. It's like the first half is, hi, nice to meet you. Let's play Mr. Fix-It with all the ways your body's out of balance. You know, kind of deal with the low-hanging fruit, clear the air, get to a place of relative physical resilience, physical stability. And then it really just creates the stage for us to be able to grapple with the much more fundamental and psycho-spiritual reasons that we're anxious. And that runs the gamut. You know, it can, someone can have no trauma if any of us really have no trauma, um, but not be that maybe they're not getting their fundamental human needs met in their current life. But a lot of people the reason that they're stuck and the reason that all the different therapies and treatments and medications that they've tried are not really getting them all the way there is because trauma is kind of at the root 
and still dysregulating their nervous system, keeping their limbic system where it's almost like the foot is stuck on the accelerator pedal. And then you just feel hypervigilant and um, a state of hyper arousal all the time and perceive threat inappropriately where it isn't. And that makes it really hard to go through our daily lives. And that's where I like work that focuses on regulating the nervous system and somatic based therapies. Cause I find that like talk therapy, talkie talkie, that's not really what accesses where the trauma is stored in our bodies. Thank goodness for Bessel van der Kolk who opened her eyes to this. It's stored in our tissues. It's stored in our physical bodies and hashing and rehashing not only doesn't get there, but I find can even be re-traumatizing. So I, I like my patients to get into some kind of trauma-focused therapy. And there's a lot of good ones, somatic experiencing therapy, EMDR, DNRS. You know, this is a lot of acronyms. Um, you know, uh, the like family constellation therapy, there's so many different ways to work through what we're holding on. And sometimes it's even what our ancestors were holding on, which on a biologic basis impacts us epigenetically. So we carry a lot of trauma from our own childhoods, from our lives, and even from our ancestors. And we need to work through that as well to shift the foundation. Yeah. I love that you brought that up. I love, 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 because, you know, I, I think uh, you know, I talk a lot on this show about physical detoxification, but it's equally important because we know with the ACEs study that, you know, over 67% of physical health issues are rooted in that childhood attachment trauma. So it's so important to be looking at, at your trauma. If you're looking to have physical relief of your, your health symptoms or issues. Um, so I'm glad that you're, you're talking about that and it's uh, part of your book. Uh, and so where do we get your book? So your book is the anatomy of anxiety. Um, where do we find your book and learn more about your work? Yeah. So, um, you can really get my book wherever books are sold. And I, I love to always, um, encourage people to support local bookshops, to support black owned bookstores. I think that's a wonderful way to just, um, you know, just make conscious choices about where we give our money. Um, but, uh, it's, you can learn more about my work. I'm pretty active on Instagram. I'm at Ellen Vora MD. And my website is ellenvora.com. And the book is called The Anatomy of Anxiety. And I really hope for anybody who resonates with any of these messages that it can be helpful. So any closing thoughts or anything we, we didn't cover about anxiety? I think what's coming to my mind right now, I really like what you just brought up. Um, and it is interesting with the ACEs study, like this is in the realm of true anxiety, but sometimes those of us who get really focused on healing the body, fixing the body, it can almost be a diversion or a distraction from a more central problem in our lives. That's really hard to look at. And so, you know, if that sounds familiar, it's just worth slowing down, maybe putting a gentle hand on your heart, on your belly, tuning in and realizing how strong you are and how capable you are of facing what might be a more inconvenient truth that has to be grappled with. And, and I think if there's one thing to prioritize above everything else, when it comes to managing anxiety, it's community. And it's not always easy to do that. Modern life does not make it easy to live in community, but this is at the heart of our anxiety. Um, we're hardwired to feel safe when we're really deeply held in community and in relationships and when we feel like we're not held or seen or witnessed or supported, it can just leave us feeling like we're out alone on that proverbial savanna of evolution. 
And that's a very uneasy feeling. And so just make sure that you're seeing it as a priority. Any opportunity you have to choose people, to connect with the people that you love, who lift you up, that gets prioritized over everything else I'm saying, meal prep and early bedtime. And, you know, really everything else is secondary to community. Yeah. And I think, you know, the overarching theme is that there's a lot of things to address that are very simple, like getting back to basics that will, you know, uh, ameliorate so many people's symptoms and, and, you know, get rid of, you know, 80%, 70, 80% of symptoms people have just getting back to very, very fundamental basics. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Vora. Uh, that was a great show. I love your energy. You're just so grounded and perfect, uh, you know, spokesperson for anxiety. <laughs> You're like the opposite of anxious. <laughs> uh, so thanks for coming on. And uh, I'm Wendy Myers of MyersDetox.com. And, and thank you so much for tuning in every week uh, to all the world experts that I, I have come on the show. Because uh, my goal is to really help you to feel good. You deserve to feel good. And it can be simpler than you think. Uh, so talk to you soon. See you on the next podcast. The Myers Detox Podcast is created and hosted by Wendy Myers. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Wendy Myers and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.